0: Hello and welcome to another special episode of the UK Airshow Review podcast, the podcast we started back when we had no airshows to review. My name is Sam Wise, known on the UCAR forums as wisam 24 and with me today are the regular podcast members...
1: Tom Jones, Tommy on the forum. Dan Ledwood, Ledhead27 on the
0: forum. Uh, joining us today is a man who I imagine most, if not all, of our listeners will have seen at some point in the last few years at the front of a formation of nine small red jets. It is, of course, squadron leader Martin Pert, otherwise known as Red One, team leader of the Royal Air Force aerobatics team, best known around the globe as the Red Arrows. Martin, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you, Sam. It's a privilege to be here and talk to you fine gentlemen this afternoon. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, Great to see you. Um, so today we're going to be speaking to Red One about the team's
0: tour of North America in 2019, as well as the unprecedented circumstances they found themselves in 2020. Uh, and how they've overcome them. But before we get into that, Martin would you mind just giving us a a quick idea of what your route to becoming team leader of the Red Arrows was?
2: Yes of course, so as a normal Royal Air Force pilot I applied for the Red Arrows back in 2011 and I was accepted onto the team having flown the Harrier and the Hawk as a previous flying instructor. Um, But really the highlight of my career till then was being in the Red Arrows from 2012 to 2014 where I was Reds 2, 4 and 8 respectively. Uh, And then actually I left the team in 2014 to fly the Typhoon. And I converted onto the Typhoon and then moved up to RAF Lossy Mouth where I was a flight commander on two squadron, which was newly reformed, having swapped from the Tornado GR4 to the Typhoon. And in 2015 we set that squadron up. And I was a flight commander on the squadron from 2015 until I was then selected to come back to the team, which of course was a a huge honour, in 2017, taking over from Dave Montenegro, Monty, for then the 2018, 19 and 2020 season, which is where I find myself now. Fantastic.
0: Um, And one of the things you've overseen as team leader in the last few years has been the, uh, was the tour to North America last year. Um, In fact, I think it was exactly a week and a year ago today that the team set off. Um, How long was that tour in planning for and how much of it was new that had to be worked out by the team and how much did you rely on knowledge gained from previous tours?
2: Yeah, it's incredible that it was on the 5th of August last year 2019 that we left and here we are 12 months later which is is almost unbelievable because it felt like yesterday that we left. That tour was just so gargantuan in its in its size and in its agenda that it really did take an awful lot of planning. So even before I came to the Red Arrows as the team leader, um, sort of early in 2017, we already had an inkling that the team might be going on tour across the western direction, having been having been east a number of times in the previous sort of five to six years. So really, you know, the, the embryonic stages of the tour were already starting to form back in 2017. But actually it was 2018 and whilst we were busy with what was obviously a big year for the Red Arrows anyway and the Royal Air Force as a whole with the centenary celebrations of RAF 100 that actually when we weren't celebrating that on the road and our normal displays we were back at base beavering away and planning for what was obviously going to be a huge 2019 for us. So I would suggest that you know the bulk of the real planning started at least 12 months out and that involved not just the Red Arrows but the whole Royal Air Force. We had to look at how we were going to get across there, which was the biggest the biggest sort of logistical factor for me as the team leader and sort of most of the team members. Our kind of on-the-road business in the States is very similar to, to how we conduct our operations all around Europe. So once we were in-country or in-continent, that wasn't going to be an issue. It was just about how to get there was the biggie and how to get all of our people and then, of course, all of the logistical elements that we couldn't just send someone back to our home base in a car to pick up. You know, we're now sort of eight hours time difference away from our home base so the detail of that started to form in about the six months prior to the to the departure date for the actual tour itself Uh, and then clearly pretty much every single day we were at work if we weren't focused on what the task was in hand that day be it riat or whatever air show we happened to be at you know we were really focusing on on getting the planning done for for the nitty-gritty of of what was to be you know probably one of the biggest tours in the reds history
3: what were the um The team's objectives from the tour, and when you, um, did they change much um, as the tour approached, or were they pretty much the same as when they were first? You know, when the team first decided it wanted to do the tour.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And and the way we're tasked is actually quite an important uh, route into what the objectives are going to be. So whilst we absolutely desperately would love to have gone to the States much, much earlier, given it was 11 years between the previous visit and, and 2019 tour, it's actually got to be governed by a strategic objective. And that was dictated from the FCO's great campaign. And that's all about engendering British prosperity overseas. So we were absolutely dialed into something much bigger than just going to air shows. This was about promoting Britain. Now given the tour was planned probably 2 or 3 years um prior to us departing, you know, that was part of their big prospectus, but come 2019 the focus for Britain was also elsewhere and it actually tied in quite nicely with what was going on sort of in in kind of home political terms. So those objectives really for us as the Red Arrows, however, was to do as we always do. That is to display the level of precision and excellence in the people that we represent and the country that we represent, regardless of where we go. And that matters not whether we're across in the middle or far east or west across the US continent. So, no, those objectives didn't really change. What clearly changed is how we were going to deploy those objectives, and how, how we were going to execute those objectives, and, and meet what we actually wanted to meet, and also just the shape of the tour as it started to formulate, as making sure that we did capture those at every stage.
1: Obviously, like uh, a big part of you know going to display at air shows overseas is public engagement. Um, out of interest, how did you find the uh, North American uh, public's response to your displays? Was it different to the UK or? You know, obviously it was something that they've not seen for quite some time, so was it quite different
2: it it was different, but in some regards it was very similar as well what what was similar is that the the reception that we got varied depending on where we were so um, and that's very similar to the uk there's some people who just like being on a beach happen to you know have a summer's day where they can have an ice cream Mm -hmm. and watch the Red Arrows and that that to them is summer whereas you go to somewhere like Riyadh or um, some of the more sort of in-depth smaller air shows, Duxford perhaps where you really have a very knowledgeable airshow audience who are there to not just enjoy airplanes flying but to you know to get into the the detail of what they're observing and, and you know prove their knowledge and, and, and absorb some more knowledge. So we definitely found that around uh, every display site we went. There was just a variance of, dif- of types of audience. What I would say is, um, I mean, you you know how vocal Americans can be, and they're very rapturous. So mm-hmm. what was really great, not for so much us in the cockpits, because we can't really hear anything clearly up there in the air, <laughs> but I know certainly our engineers and, and, and our PR team and, and the feedback that we got through videos and social media, um, tends to be a, a little bit more vocal, you know, whooping and hollering at the air shows when, when you know the guys are doing the Jippo break, which, you know, stiff British upper lip, we will get a clap or, a you know, a, definitely a couple of smiles and maybe a clap as we get out of the cockpit. But, you know, we know the British audiences appreciate that, but the American audiences do tend to display that a little more um, fervently uh, there in person. So I think, you know, for the whole team, that actually was a really uplifting moment. And because we've not been there for, for 11 years, it was something new for them. And there's lots of display acts in the U S and there's lots of varied display acts, but we brought something really novel, um, Mm. something that they hadn't seen in a long time. And just something as simple as the fact that we have colored smoke, which none of their national display teams have, and which really just added something extra, especially in some of those classic American days where the sky is just bluer than blue, not a cloud in the sky. You know, that, that is made for red arrows display with a red, white and blue. And that really blew quite a lot of the audiences away. So many, many similarities, a few differences, um, mainly in sort of their, their vocal stakes. But, but otherwise, it was just great and, and great feedback for us pretty much every time. Cool, fantastic.
0: Um, and in terms of the displays themselves, what were the biggest differences between displaying in the UK and Europe and displaying in North America? Did you need to adapt your display
2: in any way? Did you, were you able to add anything to it? That's a great question, Sam. So that actually goes back to the 12-month sort of planning stage that I mentioned of 2018. We already knew that the regulations for displaying were different in the US, and they're not necessarily um, wildly different, but there's a number of little key critical areas that were not compatible with a traditional European slash British Red Arrows display, which has been sort of flown, uh, you know, clearly for a number of years now. So myself and Red 10, cause we went over to the International Council of Air Shows conference in December of 2018 and we met with the regulators, we met with the FAA and we met with our counterparts on the Blue Angels, the Thunderbirds and the Canadian Snowbirds and we sat down with them for an in-depth, day-long meeting about how we could make okay. our show compatible with their regulations. And thankfully there weren't too many changes to make but what I was conscious of as the leader is that I've got a team of guys who we train day in, day out to learn this routine, of which there are three, as you know, the full flat and rolling show for the various weather stages. What I didn't want them to do was have to learn six, i.e. two of each, one yeah. for UK and one for an American audience. And we knew that the season was split in half, with, with half the season beginning in the UK and then half the season in the US. So what I actually did in 2018, in the latter stages of that season, is sat down and formulated a display that was compatible with both regulations, both the UK and the US, so that we just flew the same display in both locations. And that meant that when we got to the US, despite it having taken sort of approximately 10 days between uh, display practices from leaving the UK and arriving able to practice in the US, there were only a couple of minor tweaks that we then had to make on top of what was now a pretty uh, a routine show that the guys had, had, had demonstrated and had practiced for a good six or seven months of training. Um, and they're simple things like tornado. Usually we point tornado in on the 45 at the crowd. So you get the sort of headlights on because of some of the regulations, we now had to put that parallel to the display line, to the to the crowd line. Okay. We could still bend it, we could still go outbound. We just couldn't point at the crowd with it, as an example. Um, and there were a couple of minor little changes such as that, which actually to, uh, to you know, I don't want to say the uneducated eye, but to, to someone who's not right into the weeds of a Red Arrows display, they probably wouldn't have even noticed. Sure. And, and we flew that to, to success in the UK. We won the Steedman Sword at Riyadh again, so clearly the sort of panel at Riyadh sort of probably thought it was fine as well. And then we took it to the US to to you know, critical acclaim.
3: Has that hybrid display um, uh, th- was that then taken into the the twenty twenty season? Obviously, before what what happened and everything, was that something that was then going to become part of a normal Red Arrows display, or did you revert back to previous European? Uh, you know, like like that example of tornado yeah. twenty five No, again, a
2: good question. No, we we sort of reverted back to uh, sort of standard red arrows, UK sort of European slant restrictions, and because they are so uh, they're so slight, the differences that was very easy to do. So the fact that we hadn't flown them for one year didn't mean that everyone's now unable to fly it a following year. It, very subtle tweaks to mm. to what was already a fairly well established display.
3: And speaking of that then, um, obviously slightly tweaked display, what sort of, what other challenges did the team have with with doing the tour?
2: Well, you know, I'll go back into the displays and and I think it does go back to to one of the questions before about the challenges of the displays. The big challenges were just the topographical differences of each display site, which were so much more varied. Mm than we get on a normal UK or even European season really? so if I can just sort of give you if I can give you two examples uh, which came kind of weekend uh, consecutive weekends so that in fact it was a year ago almost to the day it was to the day we were actually in Gatineau, Ottawa which is a lovely little 6,000 foot long runway in pretty much un- uh, it's just almost in a field you know there's, there's very little surrounding it mm. so much like duxford really i mean we've got Duxford, we've got duxford village for example but much like a, a kind of traditional uk not much built up area lots of green fields um, not much for us to concern ourselves with as far as either distraction or second party third party spectators which is a big issue now the following weekend we're then in chicago at the air and water seafront show or lakefront show there are a million people along a stretch of about a mile long, and less than a quarter of a mile behind datum so not even behind the sort of show line but behind datum we've got the John Hancocks building up to that one thousand wow. six hundred feet so we've got you know the skyscrapers of of Chicago <laughs> there and you know that that in itself is a big challenge for us and we have to adapt to our display knowing that we've got those sort of challenges behind us so I think as team pilots those were probably the biggest factors the second one i'll mention is just the weather in the the u.s continent it, it's obviously such a huge continent that you can't clump it into one continent you've got to talk about it you know in different sectors in different mm. states as you will but the the weather systems there bubble up much much more quickly than they do here in the uk and in the uk we've got intricate weather uh radars in almost every you know almost every square mile so you can get quite accurate data and you know where the rain is every time you contrast that with some of the plains of idaho and and um, you know arkansas where there's nothing you know there literally is nothing out there you hear that there might be thunderstorms forecast you look at the temperatures until you're actually out there or you've got live feedback in the jet at the time you don't know how that weather's developing over a two-hour transit between chicago and new york for example so the weather challenges was was the second probably biggest challenge for us as the operators and and you know made to make life on on the road pretty exciting at times
1: did you encounter any particularly adverse weather whilst you're out there whilst transiting or was it mostly plain sailing
2: we i I wouldn't ever say it was plain sailing thankfully the transit to and from which we sort of touch on a bit later were reasonably straightforward we had a bit of bother getting back across the pond but that was more just classic kind of arctic circle type weather which we were we were expecting on route during the tour we had one relatively interesting incident where it was actually between chicago and new york and it's quite a well-known area the hudson uh, the hudson bowl is well known for the way the thunderstorms build up in the afternoon and because of a delay to our aircraft we left a little later than i wanted to leave we, we kind of had to get on road um and we left a little later the forecasts were that there were a few things bubbling up that we could probably get a clear line through it and actually air traffic control are very helpful in the US they will they will let you deviate from your sort of flight plan route quite a lot but we did as we got close to New York Stewart Airport um, we were told that there was precipitation we were told that there was a thunderstorm bubbling up air traffic gave us what they thought was a clear lane and actually all of a sudden we found ourselves in some pretty meaty weather and you yeah. know taking one aircraft in is is fine in a hawk you know the little thing's pretty venerable, but when you're taking 11 aircraft in formation, mm. split into two, two sections, 1,000 feet between you, none of you can actually see what's going on, it got a little hairy in places on that, on that transit and what that really did was everyone was fine, it was absolutely no bother but it just amended the way that we do our transit flying, we were able to um, appeal to our chain of commands to to buy some extra gadgets that we could put in the jet, just to sort of get live feedback. ADSB being one example, um, mm. on both traffic and weather in the US. And that you know that was sort of game changing stuff. And they're little $400 boxes. And and the chain of command were brilliant. You know we said we we need these to do this safely. Next day we had them in cockpit and we were able brilliant. to use them. So yeah, it was a great example. It was something that we learned on the way. It wasn't dangerous, but it just was a bit a bit fruitier than we would have expected. Mm. Um, do you know what your next tour is going to be? Uh, no, I don't. No, there's some rumours abound, but clearly, I think a lot of the focus is just trying to get on back to normal well, as, yes, as much as possible. So, hmm. um, guys, t- tending not to talk about tours at the moment because actually yeah. it's, it's home plate <laughs> that's that's more important.
0: Well, I mean, I, I suppose that's a very good way to move on to the, the next subject, which is obviously that was the end of your 2019 season. Fast forward to 2020 and. You know we all know what's happened this year mm-hmm. um once it became apparent that this year was obviously going to be different and you know air shows were cancelling and and the team's activities were going to be curtailed by COVID 19 what were your initial reactions
2: um i think like everyone else the initial reactions were let's just make sure those closest to us are safe let's make sure that every member of the team and their extended family is doing the right thing as unpalatable as it is, we just need to make sure that we're not rushing into things for the sake of it. You know, we're we've got to be honest about this. The Red Arrows are not at war. We we're not on an operational footing. We we can afford the the opportunity to down tools, which is exactly what we did. And we were under the same restrictions as everyone else. So, you know, clearly there was disappointment involved. I think that's for every member of the team. Um, but that's tinged with the reality and the pragmatism of of what we're undergoing here. And there's there's sort of much bigger issues at stake um thankfully so yeah it is a tricky one to balance really and and once the initial disappointment had faded um it was about w- how do we rebuild what's appropriate how do we keep the team safe and what's the future you know and how, how do we make sure that we've got an outlook on not just the short term but but the long game for for the red arrows
3: so um you down tools you know made sure that you and your family were safe of course, as we all did. Uh, when when did you sort of turn your mind into, or, or sort of focus on what you could do this year, and how did you start uh, planning for the year ahead? Because obviously, it's such there's so so much uncertainty, um, hmm. and and even now, although it's you we know, were slightly more used to it back then, yeah. you know, none of us knew exactly what was going on no at all. Knew
2: yeah absolutely so uh, the first sort of critical element to get out the way was the currency and making sure that people weren't going out of currency or if they were we had a plan to sort of get them recurrent as soon as possible thankfully we actually only were away from the the sort of work building for about i think 10 or maybe 14 days so um, we were able to instill distancing measures very quickly at work you know we had a number of our sort of logistical and support elements who were able to work from home were, were sort of cleared out and, and stayed working at home. For kind of the operators and the engineers, it, we could have we could actually bring in distancing measures, which meant we could get back to work quite quickly. So, obviously, a few changes to how we to how we did our um, standard operating procedures. We did a, a few changes to how we get in and out the aircraft, for example, of which I'm sure you'll have seen sort of photographs on social media. But actually you know, the focus was, right, let's get recurrent so that we're safe to fly the hawk. Let's build back up to the small formations very quickly, in, back into kind of nine ships. And then it was about what What are we actually getting ready for? Um, and actually, we had the trust of our chain of command that we didn't know what was coming next. So the best thing to do was to try and achieve a public display authority status so that we could be ready for whatever we've been tasked for. We knew that there was going to be national flypasts and we knew that potentially at the end of the season there would still be some events that we could take part in so critically we couldn't deploy on our exercise spring hawk where we make use of the good weather in march and april where typically it's not great here at scampton so we just had to amend our procedures we we had to live with that um but thankfully somehow some parts in good fortune due to the good weather we were Mm -hmm. only about a month late on our pda and that was a fully uk-based pda so Yes, we simplified the show a little, um, but it was really important as focus for both the pilots and the engineers that we had something to drive for, and that was PDA, and we got there about sort of two and a half, three weeks ago. And then, you know, it's just like everything else in life. It's just what is the next lamppost? Where are we running towards next? And, you know, that's the next challenge for, for us as a leaders is what are we looking next to? You know, we're still looking at events in the UK at the moment. We still um, potentially have some... Uh, overseas engagements we still have some nationally tasked flypasts and that keeps the focus but then the longer term focus is is kind of into 2021 and making sure the team is prepared
3: has that impacted on um uh sort of new blood joining the team every year Uh, have you sort of just put a stop to that for the moment and and kept things as they are or are you still trying to um operate as business as usual as you can
2: a bit of both It, it has absolutely um you know, on one part, all postings in the Air Force were stopped until July. That was just to deal with the COVID measures. So so there was no one being posted in and out. That. That's engineers primarily that it was affecting because we, we have a steady turnover of our maintenance staff and support and logistical elements. As far as the pilots go, we clearly couldn't go away on exercise spring hawk. It wasn't appropriate to bring new pilots to the team because you introduce risk with anyone who's not part of the kind of work bubble So we elected not to do a selection procedure, just to determine whether it might be appropriate to do one in the future. But actually, the biggest thing for us, as I've mentioned a number of times, the safety and the coherence of the team. If they haven't displayed on the road for an entire year, where's your corporate knowledge if you're getting rid of the standard three pilots per year? Mm. So quite early on, we recommended that it was appropriate that certainly a huge major bulk of the team stay on. So what we actually recommended was we just freeze the team into next year. We don't recruit any more pilots. The guys who are in their first year, hopefully next year, will get to see the normal sort of run of the mill life on the road, which they haven't really seen yet, build up that experience. And then we start that cycle again. Slightly complex in that a new leader. So my replacement had already been selected by then. It's not as appropriate or or sorry it's not as um, reliant on a new leader having seen those because don't forget every new leader has been on the team before um, and actually I've got things I need to get on with in my career so what's actually happening is Reds 2 to 10 are staying as they are they're staying frozen and then I will be replaced um, as normal as I was expecting to be at the end of of this season whenever that might be so we're expecting kind of October time for my replacement um, to come in and, and we'll start the handover process. And that's entirely appropriate because he he's been through this before he now just needs to train up with a new team in the normal winter training period probably somewhat simplified for him because he's now got a pretty experienced team although they haven't been out on the road they've done a pda they know how to fly a pretty damn good display because we're ready to go on the road at the moment they just haven't had the opportunity to exercise that yet
1: um i know it's sort of obviously been a very quiet year in terms of um Little to no public displays, but you guys managed to um, manage to do the joint flaps with uh, the Tour de France over Heathrow for the uh, mm-hmm. the anniversary of Charles Gold's um, announcement during World War II. Um, can you tell us anything about like the planning that went into that? Was it just you know w- similar to the the formation fly pass that you did with them last year at Ria, um, or was there special considerations with it being over the capital?
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, a, a joint fly flypast, well, a fly past over any capital city is a great event, whether you're a team on your own or with another one. But, you know, you add in another formation, so you've now got 18 aircraft. It, it is, it's, it's a great event. You know, it's very exciting for us as well. Um, the way that all comes about is that, you know, clearly we get the tasking notice that that's from sort of upon high, that this might be happening. Um, we're then pretty quickly Uh, cleared to kind of liaise with our counterparts and we we know members of the Patrial de France very well from activity we got on with last year um, and you know we just sort of reignited some of those uh, those communication lines and we got on to them very quickly about how we were going to do it and actually it was really nice in that clearly they're the subject matter experts for flying over Paris (laughs) we're the equivalent for flying over London so what we did was we split the task into two they looked after the Paris element and we looked after the London element. And it was really nice because in that respect, we kind of went over there. They literally just kind of enveloped us in their, you know, procedures, their protocols, their, you know, entire fraternity. And we did the same when, when they came over to Bryce Norton for the London Fly past. The spanner in the works for us is that we knew the weather wasn't looking great so our original plan because of Covid measures was to deploy out of Scampton here very early in the morning sort of half five takeoff, first light to get into France to then join up with the, the French so land refuel take off with the French do the Paris fly past then probably fly from Paris to Bryce Norton because of the weather considerations we had to deploy the night before, which with COVID just added some complexity, but actually was was very well handled by both the military and the um, the kind of French elements to it. So we landed in the night before and that allowed us the time to do face to face briefings, despite us having done plenty of virtual meetings with the French teams. getting to look the guys in the eye and say this is what we're going to do. And this is the contingencies always helps. Landed in briefed as a, an 18 ship formation split into our two individual nine ship formations and it was as simple as they took off first we took off after them and i just followed them and it, and <laughs> i don't mean to simplify it but i followed them my guys followed me as soon as he gave the french for whatever color on go is our boys did the same with a little bit of translation and you know right place right time and you know a lot of trust is placed in them to be on the right place right time but but you know clearly we're backing them up with our gps we then all landed back in evero just outside paris refueled en masse came into Bryce norton in the worst conditions i've seen in the uk for years <laughs> you know, yeah. rain rain it was I just absolutely tipping with rain and the, and the french i felt for them because at that stage it was looking unlikely that the london element of the fly pass was going to happen it was probably going to be cancelled and i'd given them a warning at lunchtime i said look we've done paris that's brilliant thank you I just want to you know, deliver you the bad news that it might not be a reciprocal agreement in London because of the weather. And they completely understood professional aviators. Okay. But we got to Bryce Norton. They kind of got what I meant because the weather was so foul. Um, but thankfully, after a bit of replanning, we did all of the elements in the UK airspace uh, and we got airborne in distinctly foul weather out of Bryce Norton. In fact, it was pretty much fog. But by the time we got to kind of the Bagshot area and kind of around uh, where the old Greenham Common Base was, thankfully the weather front it just completely closed out completely moved on and we were presented with blue skies and and the sun was shining so you know at that stage i could hear the excitement in the the french leader's voice because they (laughs) knew you know this is a big event for them they're they're flying over another capital that that's a big event and you know we led them the wrong way across london it's a way we don't often fly from west to east usually we're flying down the mall which is kind of east to west um and it was just a beautiful day sort of tinged with you know the slightly ghostly London of of sort of lockdown where there's not many people around but kind of almost brought a bit more poignancy to the event because we knew that that was what London was like so yeah an incredible day and and very exciting and always is for us to do any national flypast let alone in another capital on the same day with with another national display team.
3: That's excellent. What sort of relationship do you have with you, other european teams like the patrie de france um french Patrice Patrice suisse do you speak to them in the off season or you know do, do you have regular contact with them
2: we do it, it it tends to depend on where we've met up together in the previous season so much like any sort of relationships with, you know any uh, kind of professional body the more recent you've been around a, an outfit or been at the same airshow as them that The more recent the kind of lines of comms are so i would say um we're you know us and the french are very we're very close because we've been at a number of events last year clearly they were across at riat they'd been on tour to the us and they helped us out a lot with just some of the little um sort of airborne elements of of planning Um, we spoke to them quite a lot of detail prior to our u.s tour um, so a very close relationship with the French, and we speak to them in the off-season a lot. You know, just We try and align diaries where we can. We try and do a bit of training with them where we can. Unfortunately, it didn't work this year. For the other teams, like the Swiss and the Italians, just because we haven't been at the same events as them, we don't speak to them on such a regular basis, apart from at the professional bodies like the European Airshow Council. Um, and one of the other teams that we do speak to quite regularly is the Croatian team, the Krilla Alue, which is not a well-known team, Across here in the UK, they've been to Riyadh, but an incredible little team out of Croatia, um, because we actually stop off at their home base on our way down to Greece, and we've stopped there uh, for the last four years that we've been on the way to Greece, Um, and you know they just feed off, you know, the information that we give them. We're more than happy to to sort of embrace uh, them into our operations for the day that we're there, and it's just great to to chat, you know, off record and on record about operating procedures difficulties that we faced, air a bit of dirty laundry so they can learn from our errors and, and vice versa. and Yeah, so two close relationships, Croatians and the French. We do speak to the other teams, but maybe not quite as regularly just because we've not been with them as much in the last year, two years. It's interesting
0: you you talk about the, the Croatians because I remember seeing on their social media um, posts about the Red Arrows arriving and I just found it very interesting that it, it seemed like quite a close relationship.
2: Yeah, and it's great, you know, they... It's a perfect stop off for us. It, it, it marks, um, you know, almost a, a kind of empty tank of gas. So it's it's absolutely ideal that we can go in there and have something other than just getting a no, an overnight stop and a refuel, which is what we used to do by going into southern Italy, which would have been great if if the wretched Tricolori were based down in southern Italy, but, mm-hmm. but unfortunately they're not. You know, they're in Rivolto. So um, the Carilla are, are in the perfect location. A bit of defense engagement and a bit of cooperative work. It, it just. It melds together seamlessly, and, it, and it, it's really great for us. And, it, and it's definitely great for them. You can tell they they enjoy that interaction. And, and it, why not? You know, that's what they're that's what they're trying to achieve. And we're all out for the same goal. Um, I just wanted to go slightly
0: back to the the fly past for the Paris de France. Um, was it how, how long was that in planning? How long did you know you were going to be doing that? Because would it have been possible had Heathrow um, been in sort of normal swing of things?
2: we knew about the fly past probably about two months before it happening um yeah so we get quite a lot of support from from the national air traffic uh from NATS um from the CAA um for anything that is nationally tasked of a you know this came straight from the top this came straight from Downing Street and we get a lot of support from Heathrow and the surrounding air traffic agencies so it definitely helps that Heathrow had, I think, one aircraft <laughs> lined up at the hole, whereas we're used to seeing when we close that place off. We're used to seeing ten or eleven, you know, lined up, and that's just in the two or three minutes that they close the airport for us to fly <laughs> past. Um, but I would almost say it, it is kind of business as normal for them to to kind of restrict their operations. There's a number of mitigating factors. They don't actually close the whole airport. They can still get on with some ops. So. It definitely helped, probably them more than it does us, because most of the time it's it's behind closed doors and, you know, an invisible sort of cloak somewhere in an air traffic control room that we don't see. But, um, yeah, they were very supportive, as they always are.
0: And in, in terms of other fly paths and other events, obviously you said you, you're hoping to display later in the year. Um, are you, do you have any idea of where you might be aiming to go? Would you have, given that there are obviously... F- Way fewer air shows around. Do you have any likelihood that you might go abroad if the opportunity arose?
2: There's a a number of ones in pencil at the moment. I'm not going to name them just because they themselves don't want us to publicise just at the moment, just for obvious reasons. Um, There are a number of, I say a number. There's a a couple. There's a very small handful of UK events that are still penciled in. Again, it's not really at my liberty to tell you which ones because if they haven't publicised them yet, there's probably a good reason. I think everyone's just sort of playing it close hold at the moment. Um you know we are on the billing for for Duxford that is one that I can definitely tell you and we are absolutely looking forward to that should it go ahead and you know everything crossed that the current measures mean that that can go ahead because we absolutely are ready and willing to get out and display in front of the UK public because um you know we need to for our own currency reasons but we absolutely understand that the air show audiences are are, are gagging to to see it so when it's appropriate to do so we will but like I say, I mean, it's a very small handful of, of public events that we're still just penciled in for. And, and we're playing each day as it comes because it is almost every day we find out a new development. And, and that's not necessarily a cancellation. That might be an addition. But, you know, it's so fluid mm. even now. Here we are on sort of August the 12th. We, we don't really know.
3: How much does it mean to the team to be able to do these um, uh, high-profile fly pass or whatever events you know there are how much does it mean to the, to the team to be able to perform them
2: they're always huge it matters not what type of season we've had you know that there's an incredible level of pride that's taken from every man on the team i'm talking you know uh your newly arrived leading aircrossman who's straight out of training on the on the unit right up to you know me leading the team at the front it's they're always very privileged, and we completely understand of all the planning that goes into flying over, be it London, for example, but it certainly takes on a different tinge this year when there's not an awful lot else going on and and One such example for us was the v e seventy five fly pass, which was not publicized because we were right in the heart of lockdown, yeah. and we had to have special measures to even leave the house to get airborne <laughs> um, uh, you know we flew over london, which was it was ghostly, you know, and I'm used to because I get the view at the front, I'm used to seeing a lot of people and and there was just no one there, you know, right in the heat of it. Um, But it was recorded and it was done very well by BBC events and actually they got some swooping shots that they probably wouldn't really have gotten a normal um, Queen's Birthday Flypast or VE Day. And, you know, I think really that hit home to the boys about, yeah, proud moment as ever, but some of the feedback that we get through social media and, and official comms as well, goes one sort of step above given sort of how fluid 2020 has been this year
1: and it must it must feel good as well known this weekend you've got another fly pass to look forward to with the vj 75 going essentially around the whole of the uk as well mm.
2: yeah it's great and you know I, the renaro has come under a bit of criticism for just deploying over london for nationally tasked flypast mm-hmm. so it is wonderful and totally appropriate that we we do get all of the four capitals I'm um, I'm watching the weather forecast like a hawk at the moment because uh, uh, you know I tend it tends to be about a week and a half s worth of worry as soon as the long term forecasts come out, unless they're sparkling all the way through. There's always some element of of nerves on my part that we're we're actually going to be able to achieve it because I know people are want to see us and people, you know, people will travel. This one has has been publicised to some extent, um, so people know that we're on our way and and it's appropriate. You know, people are allowed out and and can watch the fly pasts of the four major capitals so yeah fingers crossed for the weather hasn't happened yet but it'll be great you know and it's it's wonderful that we can deploy the red white and blue all over the UK and, and not just focused on one area.
0: Do you think there's a an added poignancy to being able to represent the RAF in in a year like this as well having having been able to achieve your PDA through everything?
2: Yeah Sam I think I think there is added poignancy not just because we're not just because we're representing the Royal Air Force, but we're representing, you know, the entire nation's armed forces. And we saw it quite distinctly last year of of, we're representing the United Kingdom. But actually for 2020, this is about our people. This is about the people at home. And it's about the people we're representing. The Royal Air Force has been incredibly busy. um, But a lot of it's been behind the scenes, especially with a lot of the COVID measures that have either restricted publicity of other things that the Air Force are doing or because of the nature of the operations of COVID, you know, and and getting involved in it, it, it's not for public consumption. So being able to represent both our forebears and, you know, our current colleagues, it it is poignant because where else can people see that representation that there isn't really anywhere else apart from, you know, hopefully being able to sort of look into the skies and and that little pocket flag that we're quite good at waving.
3: Mm. What's, um, uh, looking slightly to the future then obviously in the immediate term it's unknown as we said um what's the the feeling about the team moving from scampton to raf scampton to raf waddington
2: yeah it's an interesting one because there's a number of members of the team myself included who've been on the team when we have deployed to other locations for a for an extended period of time i was on the team when we bolt hold as we call it to cramwell when the runway was being resurfaced here at scampton Um, And operating out of two sites does present some challenges, you know, that most of them are fairly obvious. You know, it's how do you get a debrief facility from one location to another, which might not be so obvious, for example. So there are a number of challenges there that that we're looking forward to tackling that are not insurmountable, you know, but we'll absolutely be able to sort of uh, employ our best people to to tackle those challenges. As far as feeling goes, we were in exactly the same... um, uh, We had no... Prior knowledge than, than most of the general public. So we were constantly being asked, When are you moving and where are you moving to? <laughs> which were two questions that we knew as much about everyone else who was asking us the questions, which, which was actually a really good way to do it because we couldn't fob people off and we couldn't give them a duff answer and we couldn't trip over ourselves because we didn't know what the answer was. So um, I think we're probably reasonably relieved that we're not going too far away. I think the boys who will be here when it happens are relishing the challenge of moving to a new location. Um, and I think it's clearly tinged with a bit of sadness that the distinct history of the Reds here at Scampton since the very early 80s is um, is going to disappear. But, you know, we're all pragmatists and understand the reasons why and we're military people, so we go where we're told. So, yeah, it's um, y- there's a mix of feelings about it. But I-, I think it's about sort of moving on and just getting on with the task at hand. Decisions be made. Let's crack on.
3: Do you think it's in? Um, it's sort of important that the Reds stay in Lincolnshire skies.
2: It is for Lincolnshire people, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I I don't mean to sound disingenuous. I, I I think wherever the Red Arrows would go would probably be welcomed in it with open arms, to, regardless of which county they went to. Um, it is wonderful the support that we get from Lincolnshire, and it. You know, I'm very pleased for the people of Lincolnshire that that the Red Arrows will be staying in Lincolnshire. But equally, I, I do feel uh, you know, slightly sad for the people of, of both Yorkshire and um, uh, I guess it's Cambridgeshire, isn't it, for, um, for, for the other locations that were maybe chosen that they don't get exposed to the Red Arrows a bit more. But yeah, it, it's great, especially given that level of support that Lincolnshire has given to not just the Red Arrows, but the Royal Air Force as a whole over the last, well, 102 years.
0: Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier, obviously, that you, you are handing over the reins, so to speak, in the near future how would you what has it meant to you to be Red One to be team leader of the Red Arrows and, and looking back over your time as leader how how would you assess it
2: um, I'd probably go to someone else for the assessment as because <laughs> <always do. laughs> it's very difficult to look upon it with an insider's eye um, for me clearly absolute dream job you know it's boyhood dream I, I was uh, you know I was one of those little kids over the other side of the fence many years ago and um I still pinch myself even today when i go into the office later it's still incredible that i'm even in this office let alone two and a half years you know almost three years later um it's been a job of incredible highs and incredibly proud moments and career defining moments that will go with me to my grave but clearly it's been tinged with an awful lot of low moments throughout both my time as just a team pilot and and as leader, and you know, I'll never forget those people involved either. So, um, a real game of two halves. I would do it again in a heartbeat. It's so disappointing that they do kick me out after three <laughs> years. Every, every leader I've spoken to has said exactly the same thing, um, and they said the same thing to me when I started, which was treat each day as it comes. But before, because before you know it, it's it's finished, and I'm staring down the barrel of that in probably less than six or seven weeks. Yeah, an incredible job and an incredible privilege, and as enjoyable as as hopefully as it, it looks to kind of you guys to to be here and to be in the seat. And I just kind of wish my successor all the best for for his time.
3: What um, I mean, you, you've probably got some some clandestine words of advice for your successor. But what what <laughs> would you say if you could if you could sort of sum it up as as much as you could? What would you say to your successor?
2: Uh, yeah, don't fly into thunderstorms in New York <laughs> would be the first. <laughs> No, I think the big one really is not allowing the pressure to to get to to get to him. Is is the big one for for me as a as a as a leaving leader to my successor. Is never let the weight of responsibility dictate your decision making process. We all know how many people are on that beach or at that airfield wanting to see the red arrows but if the weather is not fit or the conditions for whatever reason are not safe you can't go and people thankfully thank goodness are so understanding when those decisions are made because thankfully they're so few and far between um so that would be my biggest piece of advice is pressonitis doesn't exist in this job you've got to take a level head and it can be very difficult to do that and i've certainly felt that pressure on a number of occasions um but thankfully, you know, made the right decision at every stage, and and you know, I'm here to sort of tell that tale. So that's that's really the only advice I've got for my successor.
0: Are you able to so give us any idea of what you're moving on to?
2: No, it's all secret. <laughs> <Okay. I'm afraid. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean sound of glib. Um, there's still quite a lot to be to be detailed out, but yeah, it's uh, it's kind of onwards and upwards for me. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, so I'm sticking around in the air force for the foreseeable. So okay. they're looking after me.
0: Fantastic. That's been fantastic. And there's anything you want to say to the to the listeners, to the the to the British public, as it were,
2: the only thing I I would like to say is clearly from a knowledgeable airshow audience is just thank you for your support over the last clearly two years of my tenure in 2018 and 19. Especially, um, you know, we felt the disappointment at the back end of 19 when we did disappear. You know, we disappeared at halfway through the season, and that is you know that's magnified now that we haven't displayed anywhere yet in 2020 so you know we do understand that disappointment we just i would just like to personally thank um, all of the knowledgeable Ayrshire audiences for their support regardless of that we're trying to do as much as we can on social media to keep people bought into what we're doing with our practices here um, and just to try and keep them fed into to what we are representing with a hope that come either the end of this season or certainly into 2021, we can try and get back to some sense of normality as soon as we possibly can and as appropriate. So it's just a thanks and yeah, all the very best for the future.
0: Fantastic. Um, thank you very much for your time today. Not at all. So thank you very much for listening to our interview with Red One. I hope it was as interesting for the listeners at home as it was for us to record it. If this is your first time listening to the UK Airshow Review podcast and uh, you like what you hear, you can listen to more episodes at airshows.co.uk slash podcast. Alternatively we're on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and a few other uh, podcast distributors. If you want to discuss the episode you can join the discussion at forums.airshows.co.uk where our UK Airshow Review Forums are and you can read our reviews of airshows aviation events and special features at airshows.co.uk you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram uh, at UK Review. Thanks for listening and uh, see you in another episode. Goodbye.